So grateful for David. Um, just, I'm so proud to call you friend too, my brother. Um, and really glad to be here this morning. I mean, just the fact that uh, he would gather you under the pretenses he just described is a big deal. We need more men to be holding each other accountable to be our very best. Uh, it's hard pill to swallow, but you name a problem in the world today, a movement, a, a point of view, a rebellious spirit in any particular population or demographic, and you can point back at yourself in the mirror. Uh, from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, uh, if things are wrong with the world, it has to do with us not doing our job. Uh, and so to the degree that we as men made in God's image uh, to be stewards and lovers of people, of his people and his creation can do our best to be all he has called us to be, to that degree we make the world a better place. Uh, and so to his point, it starts at home. It starts with uh, who we choose to be with the people who are closest to us. I'm honored and delighted to be with you today, particularly on the subject of wisdom. Um, it's a near and dear subject to me. Uh, good morning, Orlando. Long time, man. So many great faces in this room, from, from Jim to Jamie. There's just many brothers here that I love uh, and find precious uh, and dear. Uh, the idea of talking about this subject is dear to me because I came to Christ most seriously as a teenager uh, and had such serious ambitions to wanting to make a difference in the world, uh, but realized that there was a whole lot I did not know. Uh, and the more I learn and the more I grow, the more I realize there's a whole lot I do not know. Um, but hopefully we grow in our appreciation of that gap and our need for the Lord to fill it. Um, we are people of the uh, age of information. We have uh, devices uh, dinging and, and pinging us and reminding us of everything. I have to say, uh, if I seem awkward using my phone this morning, maybe it just dates me that I'm so old school. I still prefer teaching with a physical Bible, uh, but I left my Bible in the other car. And so maybe, maybe if I were a millennial, I'd be more comfortable with this. But um, uh, I'll be looking at my phone. Uh, it just still feels rude to talk to people while I'm looking at my phone, if you know what I mean. Um, but the, this, this reality of what, where we are today, we are so flooded with information that we are isolated from wisdom. And you'd think those two things should go together. And there's more information on the cover of the Wall Street Journal this morning than the average man like you or I would have been exposed to over their whole lifetime in the medieval ages. Think about that. And so the, the barrage, the flood of data, of knowledge, there's not a morning that your phone isn't letting you know that there's some terrible calamity happening halfway around the world that might affect you by this afternoon. <laughs> I mean, it's just the connectivity of it all uh, is mind-blowing, amazing, but also overwhelming. And to add to that, you know, there's products being marketed to us 24-7, the most marketed generation in the history of the world. Products that most of us don't even need and have never been necessary are sold with so much enthusiasm and energy and investment, and it bombards us from every direction. So much so, marketers know that it creates a sense of overwhelm. So the primary way that people buy or make buying decisions today is you read reviews. You find out what other people think about the product because you do not have the time to scour the internet and find the best options and make an objective decision of what you think is the best purchase. There's no way that you have the human capacity or time to do that. And so in such a time of so much information, we desperately, desperately need to be in search of wisdom. But what is wisdom? And why does the Bible say to seek it above all things? Why is it so important? It's interesting that the Bible promises to make us wiser than the sages, that the wisdom, what we call biblical wisdom, 
is the kind of wisdom that makes you wiser than if you were 10 or 20 years older. It gives you the kind of intelligence that sometimes even age cannot give you. That experience is not always equal to wisdom. That there's a unique advantage to biblical wisdom. As I reflected about this, I thought about uh, maybe one of the wisest and humblest men I've ever known um, and had the pleasure of meeting through our LifeWork Leadership Program as a, a frequent speaker, but also of reading his study that he wrote and I read in the year 2000. Many of you know the name Henry Blackaby, uh, who wrote a study, Experiencing God. Uh, and in that study, Henry talks about the fact that we often get our interactions with God wrong. Uh, the wrong, like truthfully, that God, truthfully, like many people, is not someone you can know by reading about them. Uh, you can read someone's biography. That doesn't mean you know them. To know them, you must experience them, and God must be experienced. You can't just read enough about him to actually know him. And to experience him, you must understand how God speaks. And he talks about five ways that God speaks. That by the Holy Spirit, God speaks through his word, through his people, through circumstances. Through his word, his people, Holy Spirit, circumstances. And I'm forgetting one drawing a blank uh, at the moment. But that, that idea that he is constantly active around us. That we, instead of praying for God to do something in our favor or to act on our behalf, we should be asking ourselves, Lord, where are you moving? What are you doing right now, and how can I align myself to you? As I reflected on this and on our time this morning, I, I felt the Lord uh, draw my heart to a passage in uh, the letter to the Colossians. And Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 9 to verse 14. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Does that passage preach or does it preach? I could say amen and close this morning. We could also talk about it for the rest of the day, but I'm only gonna pick a few phrases uh, from this section of scripture. When it comes to pursuing the knowledge of his will, that first little phrase there, like how do we gain the knowledge of the will of God? And it starts first by acknowledging that he has revealed his will to us. We spend a lot of time trying to get God to show us what he's doing a lot of times when God's wondering what you did with the last thing he showed you. <laughs> what, have you done, what have you done with the last thing I taught you? with the last thing you read, with the last thing you heard that you know was my will for your life before you ask me what new thing you want me to show you. And when we look at the blessing that we have, every single one of us has free and ready access to God's word at any moment of any day, something that is still nothing but a dream for millions of Christians around the world. You and I can pull it out of our pockets whenever we want. We can read it in the bathroom if we want to. 
So and that availability to God's word calls us to be pursuers of his wisdom. And I, I just right off the bat want to recommend a couple of ways that you can pursue. Well, how, how do I make the most? Because sometimes we read the word, but we have trouble gleaning wisdom from the word, even though it's rich with wisdom. Uh, one, I can tell you, these are things that have just been helpful to me. One, study it. Uh, and I, I don't just mean do Bible studies. I mean, like, get obsessed with a topic. Pick one. Find a topic that you're really curious about. What does God actually say? I get in conversations about this. I hear people comment about it. I have friends have different opinions. I've never studied it. Why don't you pick one of those topics and stop swinging off the hip what you think might be true and go find out what the book actually says. I have a baby brother who's chosen to manufacture his own uh, worldview and faith and is always citing to me all these crazy views of the world. And all I want to say to him, every single time, I say it a little less now, but it's like, Brother, would you, have you tried just going to the source instead of just hearing what other people's opinion about the Bible is? Read the Bible itself. When was the last time you did that? And to me, it's been helpful to often have people in my life who have a different belief or view than I do about the Bible and get into those conversations in civil, in humble ways, but pursue truth together with people who don't agree with you because it kind of forces you to go back and check your facts. Do you actually know what you're talking about? Or are you just quoting or rehashing something you heard on Sunday morning? And so that's super important. Take nothing I say this morning for granted as true. You should go check it out yourself. Second is read. I know that sounds really basic, but you should read and read a lot of the Word of God. A lot of men in particular oftentimes struggle. Like, I read this verse. I don't know what it means. Like, this sounds really good and pretty. Or this, like, where are the commas in this thing? Like, this goes on and on. Uh, and so... In, in, or you're reading through genealogies and you don't know why, why is this even here? And the best way to gain a sense for the larger arc of the story of God is to consume large amounts of his word. Like it's not enough to get a quote. It's not enough to do a little devotional. It's good to reflect on a single passage. It's fruitful sometimes to reflect on a single word. But even the word will not make all the sense it could without understanding the context of the word. So maybe it's just listening to passages of, of scripture in, in your car. Um, but you need large amounts of the Bible to go into you. It's kind of like deciding I have a, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. But when Christopher, my youngest, was a baby just, you know, trying to make his way to walk or crawl around the house, it would have been really foolish for my wife and I to decide, you know what, Chris doesn't speak English yet, so we're just not going to talk to him until he starts learning the language. <laughs> like, that makes no sense, right? Like, no, he needs to be flooded with hearing the language. In fact, children in Europe, by the time they're eight or nine years old, they could speak to you in four or five languages because they're hearing all of them all the time. The brain has a great capacity to acquire language. And what you're doing when you read large tracts of God's word is you are learning the language of God. You're learning how he speaks, how he acts. How, what, how did he speak to Abraham and what did he do with Moses and why did he decide to do that with Joseph? And when you start to see, then you start to read the word and you see patterns, you see repetition. And then Jesus says something that makes no sense at face value, but you realize that he's quoting somebody and that he's referencing a story that happened 2,000 years ago or something. And you realize, wait a minute, the reason he's saying that to them now is because it connects to what happened then. And so we need to read and acquire large amounts of God's word. And third, you need to reflect. Uh, to spend time reflecting so that you can respond. Uh, Lord, what does this mean? 
And am I living this out? Or am I betraying you in this area of Scripture's command? Uh, and how am I going to act or respond on this? Because it is not enough to simply know the Word of God. We must live the Word of God. For many years, I always thought about the, uh, God's eternal purpose for the world and the idea of a new city to come as uh, this uh, in, unfathomable idea, so, so unimaginable that John in Revelation just says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And, and it seems like it's so unspeakable, he can't even describe it. He just says that one day it will come. Uh, but it wasn't until not so long ago, in the last 10 years, I remember uh, stumbling across Isaiah 65 from verse 17 and on. And there's actually a very plain description of what the new city, the new kingdom, the new heaven, and the new earth is. And Isaiah describes the kind of place where people enjoy the fruit of their labor. And children are born into calamity. Uh, that there is health and thriving, there's peace and safety and security and the agenda of God for his kingdom sounds a lot like a politician's political platform. These are common things that we care about today and if I am about God's kingdom being made reality here now, I need to be about those things. For 10 years, I spent a lot of energy and time and poured out my heart to encourage leaders to live out a biblical worldview for their role in the marketplace. Because I believe with every bone in my body, like God calls missionaries to the jungles and pastors to pulpits, he calls CEOs and salespeople and engineers and scientists to the marketplace. That for some of you, that is the most strategic place you could be for God's plan and purposes in the world. And you should have zero guilt thinking that you're any less a citizen in God's kingdom because you're not holding a Bible and preaching to people every day. And the point is that you're preaching to them in places where the guy with the Bible can't get to. But beyond that, it's also that there's a divine purpose and plan. He's fulfilling through your skills, through that knowledge, things that sometimes feel really mundane. Closing that deal, negotiating that contract, there's a purpose and a plan for God and what you're doing there. We started this effort called Lift Orlando because there was a strong conviction of that truth. It may be the fact that Orlando has more charities and nonprofits than more cities of, than many cities of its size, and yet somehow is making things worse with a growing number of chronically homeless, with people who are stuck in poverty and despair, no matter how many jobs they work, that there was some missing ingredient. And the couple of main ingredients we thought were missing was one, the poor folks that are, people are trying to help so hard almost rarely have a seat at the table deciding what help they should be receiving. They're almost always viewed as clients for programs, recipients for services, but how often are they asked to have some skin in the game? Uh, to maybe come up with the ideas and invest themselves in the solutions. And on the other end of the spectrum, that business leaders almost always were relegated to writing checks. Give us your hard-earned money, we'll go do some good works, come back, tell you the sob stories, and ask you for more. And we were better than most cities at doing this, doing this really, really well. Almost 4,000 nonprofits in the Central Florida area. And that's a count I made as of 10 years ago. It's probably much more than that today. So realizing that we needed to figure out how do we engage the particular kind of mindset of business leaders who tend to be more results oriented and want to figure out strategic, sustainable ways to get things done and won't be satisfied with the good feelings of doing good works, but are going to want to see a problem solved, check that off the list and move on to the next thing. Uh, and so we started Lift Orlando with that purpose and the idea of figuring out how to improve the lives of those living within the shadows of downtown, uh, and yet many of them in third world conditions for generations stuck in the same rut. 
And it was impossible to escape that it was a matter of justice, that it didn't matter for most of my board members who you know, are capitalist business leaders, type A, C-level guys and gals that uh, are normally every day making money for them and for investors, to start to realize that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you cannot escape that in reading the word, it does not matter what your title is, you must and should be about the poor. And Proverbs 29, 7 says it very clearly. For the righteous care about justice for the poor. The righteous care about justice for the poor. But the wicked have no time for such concern. They're too busy. Many of us act more like the wicked in that sense. And the fact is that in America today, the zip code in which you're born has a greater determination as to how much money you'll make, how much success you'll have, how much health, even how long you will live. Between 32805 and downtown Orlando, west of I-4, and 32804, just across Highway 50. A black boy, in particular, growing up in 32805, has the odds of graduating from high school, going to college, landing a job, and starting a healthy family that are the statistical equivalent of climbing up an escalator in the wrong direction for 12 years. That's the kind of willpower, determination, the, a mentor, a praying grandmother or two that it takes to make it out. And so many do. But that doesn't mean that they had a fair starting point. Uh, if you were smart enough to pick parents across Highway 50 when you were born, <laughs> you would have been born in 32804. All those things would have been very predictable outcomes for you and all your buddies. No superhero or superhuman effort required. And so there was this compelling notion that we could not know this and know what God has called us to do and not do something about it. Um, the second phrase in that passage, uh, back to Colossians, was uh, this idea of another reason for pursuing biblical wisdom was to gain the wisdom and understanding that the Holy Spirit gives us. And, and I want to share with you, there have been three particular views on wisdom that have been most helpful for me in trying to glean exactly how God wants us to live out this understanding of the supernatural, the biblical view of the world. And the first idea is that the invisible world is more real than the visible world. We forget this because we live in a material world. We interact with a material world. But the reality is most of what's happening in this room right now, you cannot see. The thoughts that you're having, the way you feel about the person next to you and how they smell, or what you're planning on doing right after this, what's on your agenda this afternoon or this weekend, the fact that you're probably working on your groceries while I'm talking or thinking about your bills, like there, there are things going on in our lives. It's like, you know, if I wrote the, the letters, uh, the numbers five, three, and two on a board behind me, uh, you would see those numbers. But the reality what's most important is unseen in many ways. That two plus three equals five, that five and three can equal eight. It's the, the symbols you might add to those numbers, the relationships between them, how you fill in those blanks, that's where reality is created. And so for us as believers, God calls us, the Bible challenges us to be a people of wisdom and of discernment. If I could challenge you to ask God for something daily that would greatly benefit you in business and relationships and almost all of your interactions is ask the Lord to give you discernment that you could discern the hearts and minds of men and women around you, that you could discern even your own intentions, that you could go into conversations, not just hearing the words coming out of someone's mouth, but hear more about what's happening to them. It's why I think a lot of times we read uh, the Gospels and Jesus makes no sense. Um, 
because you're only getting the written word of what's happening. And you know very well that in any conversation, the words being spoken are the smallest amount of information you can gain from that conversation, right? It's who are these two people? What's their relationship to each other? How are they dressed? And what's the tone of their voice? What's their body language? That's more than 90% of the information is not available to us when you're just reading the words. So when Jesus is talking to somebody, he is listening so intently. He does, he's a, you know, it's like the husband who's like, yes, baby, I hear you. You said, because I can quote back what you said doesn't mean I was listening to you. <laughs> There's a whole lot more to listening than being able to quote back the words spoken. And so Jesus actually listened. He observed everything about this person coming. And when he spoke a lot of times, it doesn't make sense to what we're reading because he's not just responding to the words that came out of their mouth. He's responding to the person that's there, to their story, to where they're coming from, to what they actually really mean and what their fears and insecurities are. So this first idea of understanding the invisible is also a reminder for me of the great power of prayer that there is an invisible work in prayer that we often do not understand. The way that prayer works when we pray aligning ourselves to God's word. This is the whole idea about trying to discern the knowledge of God's will. Is that God is not in the business of blessing your dreams. Similar to this group, there's a, a, a men's group I've been a part of for now 13 years. We started the Friday before the Saturday I got married. And uh, we've been coming together uh, to really encourage one another to pursue God-given dreams in our lives. Uh, and it's been a safe place to share crazy, wacky ideas and have nobody shoot it down uh, and then have people actually believe that you could pursue it. But one of the biggest lessons for me personally was the realization that it's only God-given dreams that are worth ever pursuing. I have tons of dreams and ideas pretty much every 24-hour period. <laughs> And I usually know that I'm close to what could be a good one if my wife listens to it for more than 30 seconds. <laughs> like if she asked me, actually asked me a clarifying question, I'm really on to something. <laughs> doesn't, it still doesn't mean that I should pursue it. <laughs> but this idea that God, God has all these amazing ideas. Ideas that one, he doesn't hope for, he executes. He doesn't try to do, he does. I mean, he has never been frustrated, never been delayed, never wondered what's going to happen. If he says he's going to do something, it's done. And so if you want success in your dreams, choose his dreams. <laughs> Ask him to reveal to you what are his dreams for your life and then sell yourself out to that dream. Believe that if you're betting on his dream, it will be successful. Uh, I saw two nights ago a man by the name of David Outing. Some of you may know David. He's a pastor and a chaplain in town. He's very involved with an organization called the Jobs Partnership, of which I've been an unofficial groupie for 15 years. And uh, David, for 20 years, has been praying for the Jobs Partnership. He saw the model somewhere, this idea of getting pastors involved, teaching biblical truth to people who were under and unemployed, and engaging believers in the marketplace to employ them and provide opportunity. And he said, we need this in Orlando. Lord, we need this in Orlando. And we'll not stop praying that God will provide this in Orlando. And he prayed for almost a decade before God brought other people and other resources and other finance. And the whole thing came together. And eventually, he gets invited to be part of it. And he sees his prayer become a reality without him having lifted a finger, but simply bent a knee. And what we forget sometimes is prayer is not preparation for the work. Prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. The second idea is not only that the invisible is more real than the visible, 
is that the future is now. Uh, that wisdom is about understanding that our current actions create the reality that we're to live in the future. That the transformation we pursue is not something you hope for and wait for, it's something you act on this very moment. Whether it's through prayer or through preparation, Lincoln used to say, I will prepare myself and perhaps my time will come. Understanding that there are seasons for everything. If you're stuck in a job, in a situation, in a relationship, in a rut that you feel like, I don't know, I feel like this should be better, I should be doing better, I should be using my gifts, my talents, my time a different way. Trust, be faithful, obey, and wait upon the Lord. Because He is not wasting a moment. He is not wondering what you're doing there and hoping things work out. <laughs> he is not only planning something better, but He is using every interaction every moment, every, every rough uh, you know, conflict to shape you, mold you, prepare you so that you're actually ready for the promotion that only comes from the Lord. There's an idea with this notion of uh, understanding uh, discernment and this idea of realizing that there's more than what meets the eye and that what we do now uh, lays a groundwork for the future that should lead us to be people who are different in the way we think, different in how we discern even what is right and wrong. Um, a lot of times we tend to be such, we think if we're good Christians that we're good rule followers. Well, let me say something, wisdom is not about following rules. Wisdom is about not only knowing the difference between what's right and wrong, but knowing what's the difference between good and great. There's a story about a guy who took his son to a ball game, uh, a long promise that he had for his boy. They go to a ball game, and in the middle of the game, his son wants a lemonade, and he didn't know better and buys him a bottle of Mike's Hard Lemonade. <laughs> People saw someone called authorities. Authorities show up. They check the kid, make sure he's okay. Well, next thing you know, in the ensuing days, the, uh, the father is separated from his family. The issue is taken to court. The child uh, protective services gets involved. I mean, this uh, goes on into this drama that ensues over the next six months. The, the trauma for the child, for the family, and for the father. Uh, the expense of all the people involved in this whole thing. The, the, the protective services representative, the judge, the attorney, all the folks involved, the paramedics. Somebody actually uh, had the curiosity to go back and interview everyone involved in the process. And every single person involved said, this should not have happened. This was wrong. We should not have done this. But when asked why they went ahead and did what they did, they said, well, it's my job. I got to follow the rules. These are the rules. I've got to do what the rules say. And wisdom is about knowing when the right thing to do is to break the rules. When the right thing to do is to stand up for somebody. When the right thing to do is to go against the grain. Lastly, I just want to share this because um, it's been uh, one of the most sort of defining elements of wisdom for me in any given circumstance, especially circumstance I don't like, and that often the trouble is the blessing and that you don't know the difference. Let's say you find out today that you inherited an unexpected amount of money from a distant relative and it is enough money to radically transform every aspect of your life. Uh, to help and bless people you've been wanting to help, to do great things. But in the next five years, you get so lost in yourself and in what you can do, you can forget completely about your relationship with God and about the people that really matter most to you. Was the money a blessing or a curse? You find out this evening that you or someone you love has a terminal disease. 
there's a limited amount of time for you to enjoy time with the people that matter most, for you to do the things you thought you had a lifetime to accomplish. And it seems like the worst injustice ever. But in the next 90 days of life, you spend more time on your knees, more time saying I love you, more time leaning into every chance to live life to the fullest. Was that disease a blessing or a curse? You don't know. All you can do is take what life gives you and throw yourself for the will of God to be revealed in how things play out through your faithfulness and obedience, not because you understand the circumstance, but because you trust the author of the circumstance. Can we live with such open-handed lives, with such surrender that we begin to realize that he is always in control and his intentions are good even when I do not understand them? Um, we... Um, started this work uh, realizing that we couldn't just show up in the neighborhood full of good deeds, that it wasn't enough uh, to start doing good work uh, because we had big ideas. And believe me, with a room full of type A, C-level people, there were a lot of good ideas. <laughs> and, and it made worse almost by the fact that everyone had resources to do something about these ideas. So it took a lot of, of cautioning, of slowing down, of saying, hey, let's wait, let's, let's find out. And, there's a particular approach to engaging neighborhoods called asset-based community development where you don't f focus on what people lack or what they don't have, but you spend a lot of time realizing what people do have and what do they know. Is, do they have a skill or an ability? Do they have dreams? Do they have goals? Are there natural assets and amenities in the neighborhood that you could invest in? And so for us, our effort has been built upon the notion of identifying leaders in a neighborhood that want to sacrifice, want to put sort of their, their neck on the line and put their hard work and sweat to make things happen and find ideas that we can share in common and invest in to build something great. But it's been a great reminder for me of what I think is one of the weirdest principles uttered by Jesus. Uh, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 12, he has this little phrase, for those who have shall be given more, and they will have an abundance, and those who have not, even what they think they have shall be taken away. I mean, does that sound fair to you? I mean, that verse, I've always struggled with that verse. Like, that makes no sense. Like, no, shouldn't the guy who have be, give a little, one to the, little bit to the one who doesn't have? But the reality is that when I tell you you have not and I have and I'm going to give you so I can fix you, I rob you of the dignity that God has already given you. That there is inherent value in who you have and who you are. And that there is more to what you have than what you can show me in a checking account or in your pockets. But if I start saying I see value in you, I have a buddy who's very, very successful as an investor. And he has this little phrase he likes to say that the key to success in investing is investing in undervalued assets. Finding things that other people think are not very valuable, are not very attractive, not very impressive, and then digging deep enough to figure out what's the leverage point that could make this really valuable and be the first one to make that investment. And when you look at whether it's a knucklehead teenager or your screwed up brother-in-law or the guy who's asking you for the $5, uh, start to see the dignity within that there is something precious and valuable that God saw so valuable he would die for that person on the cross and find ways to invest in people, not to fix them, not to make them whole, not to repair what's missing, but to add and strengthen, to build up, to magnify, because you believe that there's something great already there. Um, I wanna close just with the last thought, the last phrase from that passage is that we should pursue wisdom not only for the knowledge of his will, for the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, but for growing in the knowledge of God. Blackaby said that circumstances are one way that God speaks to us. 
that we should look around us all the time. He's on the move. We should be listening. We should be, you should be stepping into whatever next meeting you have, asking, Lord, what are you doing in this room? In this, on this conference call, help me, help me hear in people's voices how they're doing. Maybe you have an agenda for this meeting that's not what I posted on the piece of paper. How do I step into this listening for your will, for your ways? And how do I join you for something even greater to happen? This idea that the Lord wants for us to grow in the knowledge of him by pursuing wisdom is not just so that you can be the smartest person in the room. It's not just so you can always make better choices, have brighter ideas, live a better life. That's not the point. The point is the knowledge of God. The point is that you will grow in wisdom so that you can grow in your wisdom and knowledge of him. That by experiencing God in real life, you will grow closer to him in ways that learning information about him could never grant you. Um, we recently had the eclipse experience here in the US. I hope you got a chance to enjoy that. Um, what was really neat about that, I think for people, whether they were people of faith or not, is it was this reminder of how tiny we are. <laughs> It's one of these rare experiences where humans on Earth get a real sense of their place in the larger universe, and it's really just their place in the solar system. <laughs> and it just reminds you, oh my gosh, we are so, so small. There's a God who's so big, doing so much all around us. I've begun to realize that there is a God at work in every moment and in every conversation, and that wisdom isn't so much about knowing what to do but knowing to listen for what to do. That understanding that there's something I don't understand. When we started the work of Lift Orlando, one of my board members was so excited when we first decided we're gonna start working in this neighborhood. We had just flown back from a trip to Atlanta, an area called Eastlake, where this work had been done very successfully for 20 years. And uh, he is, he's a C-level guy who's very adept at his phone and videos. And so he actually drove through the neighborhood holding his iPhone on his dashboard uh, down the main road, made a U-turn, drove back, and then recorded it, added music to the background, and inserted images of a map, and sent it to the whole group within an hour of us having landed. And we were all like, how the heck did he do that? Um, but I watched that video several times. And one of the things I've noticed, and in this neighborhood where we've spent, you know, I mean, thousands, tens of thousands of hours building relationships, building friends, building leaders, uh, building community, uh, have you know, $40 million coming out of the ground in development, another $150 million in, in new projects, ideas of many of these residents from housing to parks to schools to after-school programs to healthcare, things that unjustly were not there even though they were in abundance in other parts of the city. I saw in this video at the beginning of the street, there was one tree, there was a little sign with a red rope around it, a white sign with black letters just said Jesus. Somebody nailed it to a tree. And then he gets to the end of the street, when he makes a U-turn, there's another tree at the beginning of that other end of the street, another sign with a little red border, a white, a white little uh, piece of wood with the words painted on it, G the word Jesus. And I was driving somebody around, we just acquired a new parcel near a city park in the school, and. Uh, it's, we've now been at this for about five years, and I found one of these signs I hadn't seen before. Tucked away in this park amidst all these trees was a sign that said Jesus. And it just reminds me, somebody did the real work of claiming this place for Christ, of bending their knees and believing God to do something here for years and years and years, and they may or may not have gotten the blessing of actually seeing it happen. 
those of us on the press re releases are just the schmucks God find around to do the work. But somebody did the real work of believing God in prayer, even though it was all invisible. That is biblical wisdom. It's what I hope and pray for you. God bless. Thank you so much.